Today on the Potential Psychology Podcast. Being able to maintain and develop a curious mindset so that you're experiencing things and understanding that there's a world outside of yourself that has all sorts of mystery and sort of inviting that in creates a whole host of benefits. You know, it facilitates nonlinear thinking because as you're pulling aspects of things that might not necessarily fit in the day-to-day, that allows you to sort of think outside of the box, outside of a work context, inviting, you know, sort of the mysteries of life and are things that really get you to think, you know, so that you have sort of a richer context. So figuring out what that means to you becomes really important. Welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, psychologist Ellen Jackson, and this is the show in which we explore what it is to be human and how we as humans can fulfill our potential. Welcome back to the show. I am Ellen. My co-host for this series is Dr. Mark Rucker. Welcome to what I believe is episode 113. But to be honest, I kind of, um, that could be an interesting study in itself, something to do with memory and cognition. I lost track after 100. I was able to count up to 100 and now I seem to have completely lost track and I'm relying on my team to create notes that tell me which episode we're up to. So I believe this is episode 113 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. And I'm going to throw straight to you. What are we going to talk about in today's conversation about fun and well-being? This episode, we're going to kind of look at the higher echelons of what fun could bring us. And so we had talked about the play model. Um, and for folks that you know aren't familiar with that, it's really a way to sort of delineate how you're spending your time. And um, one of the quadrants is the living quadrant. And the underpinning of that has a lot of Maslow in it. And, you know, this idea that peak experiences can kind of expand our horizons and make our lives richer and lead to mastery and tend to make us happier and also lead to a lot of fun experiences as well. This isn't my research, but REI, a group here in the States that sells camping equipment, has a post that's gone viral about type one and type two fun. Type two being things that you do that are hard, that aren't fun in the moment, but actually when you reminisce about them are really fun, you know, in retrospect. So I think that's kind of an interesting way that they framed it. But In general, what we're going to talk about are things that tend to be harder but are still fun and bring us pleasure and bring us personal growth. I like that type one and type two. I know know that these sort of dichotomies simplify things that are not usually simple, (laughs) and I know that we tend to err away from those as psychologists because we like the nuance, but sometimes it is helpful to be able to, at least in communicating the concepts, to delineate them as something like type one and type two fun. And and such an interesting idea that we can be having fun because I think we've probably all had that experience. I'm sure we've all had that experience of something that might not have felt like a whole lot of fun in the moment that you were doing it. And I know a couple of episodes ago, and it might've been when we were talking about the play model. I have to go back and have a look at the show notes, but for listeners, the play model we do explore in our second conversation in this series. So we'll make sure we link back to the show notes in that as well. But my recent experience of my ballroom dancing, learning and performance, and I can honestly say there were moments in that that were not a lot of fun (laughs) in that kind of joyous, happy, I'm really loving what I'm doing right now type 
moment, but that mastery that I got from it, that reflection now on that, you know, when I take that total experience, yeah, it was a huge amount of fun. And I, I think it was capped off probably by the actual performance experience where we did. That was probably more of that kind of traditional sense of fun where we got to get together. We got to do the performance. And whilst there were, again, lots of conflicting feelings in the moment because anxiety and nerves as you're about to go and perform in front of, you know, 300 people when you've never done this stuff before. But the joy that you got from seeing the crowd interaction, the joy that you got from seeing your family who were there to support you and your friends and your colleagues, the joy that you got in sharing that experience, particularly with your fellow dancers, which was really a wonderful thing. So in total, yeah, a lot of fun individually in the different pieces of it in the moment, maybe not so much. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so many things to sort of unpack why that happens. We require some level of skill, right? And so whenever we're kind of pushed beyond the skill level that we've obtained, that creates discomfort. And so discomfort always is going to kind of bring us into that negative valence state as we've discussed. But being able to push beyond our limits is almost always pleasurable and usually exponentially so. So it's almost like you're building equity where like if you don't really ever achieve anything, sure, you could live kind of a passively pleasant life, but is that something where you're sort of creating these rich experiences and these you know new memories for what we've described to be quite important, especially as you're looking back at the corpus of, of the things that you've accomplished in your life. And so figuring out how you can create moments of peak experience, depending on what you find valuable, does become quite important. And a lot of that requires you to sort of get out. And so, you know, if you're introverted, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to ballroom dance in front of a lot of people. And yet I am introverted. I still did it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It could be very well, you know, a challenging hike where it's, you know, you against nature, but it's still connecting you to something that is a relationship with something that you care about. And so, you know, we talked about in the last episode, connecting you to an invisible army of folks that don't really care about your well-being nor are important to you. These are relationships of things that are important to you. Because I assume that, you know, dancing at least to some degree was important or you wouldn't want to engage in that activity, right? And mm. so figuring out what is that hobby? What is that academic practice? What is that relationship? What are those things where you can sort of build these experiences that lead to growth, even if it does mean that, you know, hard work is in between you and, and, and that point? Hmm. And so how would you describe this to, say, a child? If you're going to talk to a your own children, somebody else's child, <laughs> about, probably your own children's a good start, about the fact that things can be fun, and they may not understand it in that sense, but can be beneficial to your well-being that feel difficult in the moment, but are still worthwhile overall and certainly will be positive in reflection. Because there's a lot of kind of interesting concepts in that, isn't there? Yeah. And it is interesting because a lot of it has to do with inherent traits. And so I'm not going to put any one of them on blast, but you know, one that uh, levitates towards that and one that refrains from it because he, well, now I've outed him, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, it's protective of his ego. And so each one of them explaining why it's important 
is a different teaching experience. But at the end of the day, it's that type of growth, the things that you want to accomplish, because most of us are driven by something. The, the best way to get there is to enjoy the experience. And so I think we've talked about it being a cliche before, but it certainly applies is that if you're not deriving some sort of pleasure from getting from point A to B, then it's certainly not going to be a pleasurable experience because there are folks that are able to achieve amazing things, but they get burnt out by the end of it. And so being able to have that kind of longevity of understanding why you're doing certain things, but then also making sure that you're really enjoying the process throughout becomes important. And I've distilled that in both my children to answer your question. And I think it's really helpful for folks that are have a predisposition to a fixed mindset. And so for folks that aren't uh, familiar with Carl Dweck's work on that, you know, it's this idea that when things don't go our way or aren't fun in the moment, that we tend to think that it's not a worthy pursuit. And if you can sort of understand that that is a function of just getting to the next step that likely is going to be more fun or even better using all the strategies that we've talked about over the last four episodes to make the hard stuff just a little bit more pleasurable, even if it is still hard to do, then ultimately, one, you accelerate your journey towards mastery or self-actualization. And then also just the corpus of the entire experience is better. And you're more apt to try and try again, too. Like, the aspect of failing is also enjoyable, then, you know, you might want to do it again. In fact, I had an amazing interview with a researcher. Her name's Dr. Cook. She had created a game called Mist with her children. So instead of when a failure happened, you know, like falling off your bike, you're like, oh, Mist, you won the game. Like that, you know, that was actually the purpose, right? And I so you're that. actually, yeah, <laughs> celebrating these sort of stepping stones towards getting it, right? And so, you know, again, part of these these tools that we're describing, that would just be a simple reframe, but like, how can you figure out, you know, making the things that are requirements, the hard work to get you to where you want to get? Because all of us do want that prize at the end. How do you make it as fun as possible? But then how do you also instill that it is important to get there? Because once you get there, then you can also relish on that experience. Yeah. And I mean, we've been talking about this in the context of, of children and parenting. I do got to stop though, because it's funny for a quick laugh. Because like, <laughs> whenever my daughter is around and she hears me talking about these topics, she's like, you're one of the funnest guys I know. And you're the fun science guy. But whenever you talk about fun, you make it so not fun. Because <laughs> so I, like, <laughs> I start like referencing all the studies that we talked about. And she'll just like, can we just get on with it? Like, why do we even need to talk <laughs> why about Why are we this? talking about it? Yeah, I'm like, that's what adults do, because we've forgotten that how, is, sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is funny. And we, and we put that kind of, this is my scientist practitioner kind of hat on, so I must talk in this certain way. It's interesting because that concept of growth and mastery being uncomfortable in the moment is something that I know I talk a lot to adults about. So, you know, we do develop these fixed mindsets and probably from my perspective, the world around us supports that even in conversations, again, I'll refer back to kids, but conversations about schoolwork and, and you know, the tests and the assessments and things like that. It, it's kind of 
getting the right mark, getting the right answer, getting the best mark in the class, that is what success is. And I know that in the practice of teaching, there's much more emphasis now on this idea that it's the experience of getting to that point. It's it's the not quite making it, it's the misses that are part of growth. But that fixed mindset, and maybe there's an individual difference in there too, but you know, for some kids in particular, that seems to set in so quickly. And certainly with with grown-ups, you know, with the grown-ups that I work with, this idea that we have to succeed and and anything other than that is not worth anything. You know, that is failure. That is all the piece on the kind of negative end of the scale that's bad. It's to be avoided, I suppose, is, is the key message that they send there and trying to switch that mindset to this mastery. I, and, and I think that that misconcept could work just as well without this idea that when you don't hit the mark, that's where the learning's going to happen. That's where the growth's going to happen. You know, if we get it right perfectly each time, we're either not setting the right goals or the right challenges, or we've just had a really unusual set of circumstances that have led to that, but there's certainly no growth in that. And that growth is a positive experience in itself. It it might not be what we call fun, but it's certainly one of the kind of positive, you know, we know as human beings, we're goal-oriented, growth-oriented organisms, and that we get a lot from that experience. So there's still a lot for grown-ups to learn around this stuff. Yeah. You brought up a couple interesting points. So the first one is, you know, that we all are different. And so then the context of like how Do we want to orchestrate this peak experience? Some people are going to levitate towards what in academia we call edge work, where they're kind of excited by what you experience as anxiety, like that rush of sort of adrenaline becomes pleasurable because that is what they want. Folks that really enjoy public speaking, like they still have the same affect, but emotionally it's expressed its pleasure, where for me it's... Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <Terror. laughs> yeah. So each you know component of how you sort of you know put this together is going to become important. And then I think the other is again this idea that no matter how we get there, these peak experiences, which we know are important because we do all want to grow, we do have the ability to orchestrate them so they are more pleasurable. And so, for instance, my daughter is really really excelling at gymnastics, but they're a couple of different ways to develop mastery at that. And especially here in the States, I'm sure some of the news, you know, made it to Australia, the way that folks used to gain mastery in that was quite detrimental and traumatic and not fun at all. And so um, is that sustainable or is that even the right path? And now, you know, they're building in a curriculum that makes it a lot more enjoyable for these young ladies. And so now they're going to look back and actually have these experiences that they're going to want to treasure when they're older rather than, you know, some folks that just want to forget that entire experience. And so Mm. being mindful, not just about what you want to do and, you know, kind of thinking of it as, you know, this form of self-expansion, but understanding that the entire journey is something for you to architect and you don't have to do it in just one way. And also if you, you know, a lot of these experiences do require mentorship but you are able to choose the right mentor too. So if it doesn't feel like a good fit and you don't feel like you're going to have fun, unless you are a masochist, then you know, you're able to you know, create an experience that you know, might not be easy the whole time because that's not it. But 
that you at least enjoy, especially, you know, as you look back at it, like, oh, that was hard, but I enjoyed it. Because if you're mm. looking back at it and you're like, that whole thing sucked, then why are you doing it? Yeah. Yeah. So growth is important, but it's not the sum total of the exercise. It has to be growth with some kind of positive element to it to really make it worthwhile, both probably in the moment, but certainly in that reminiscing piece that we spoke about in the last episode and have touched on again here today. Well, and I think we used the metaphor before, but it creates an upward spiral too, right? I mean, Mm. the idea, if the entire corpus of the experience was not pleasurable, you're likely not to do it again. So you might get to where you wanted to be, but the opportunity for further expansion likely won't be there because you won't want to do it again. It's just not sustainable. Mm. And unfortunately, we use a pretty horrible example to highlight that, but it's one that's pertinent. And I think it's probably one that's not, and, and not necessarily to that extent that I know we've seen in gymnastics, but, you know, Australia being a sporting nation, we have lots of conversations about sport and what works and what doesn't. In fact, there's been some recent conversation about our Australian football league and one particular club who had a pre-season camp that seemed to be, and it's very difficult to know exactly what the full story was, but certainly what's been reported has been a lot of these perhaps efforts at peak experience or efforts at growth and, you know, if you want to call it team bonding, that were not not only not pleasurable but also potentially quite traumatic for some, if not all of the participants. And it is a bit of an ethos and it's in sport, but I think I see it also perhaps in the corporate world a little, these kind of, we need to almost break you in order to bond you. These sorts of, you know, whether they're camps. And I know even from my own personal experience, a long, long time ago doing a university retreat while I was working, so it was a post-grad kind of thing. And there was almost a case of, we're just going to work you really hard and really long. And then we're going to give you this feedback that you've received from your workplace. And we're going to do that late at night. (laughs) And looking back, that was not a pleasurable experience. And whether I even grew from it or whether I avoided certainly that reminiscing piece because it was an uncomfortable experience, not a good experience. So, some of those efforts that maybe backfire because it hasn't been made, whether we want to call it fun or or positive or uh, to have that positive element to it. Yeah, I think everyone ultimately has a breaking point. So in my academic work, I studied physicians for quite some time. And that's certainly an aspect where maybe an episodic crucible does make sense because it's a high pressured situation. And we see this a lot in the military as well. Mm. But all of that research is being rewritten in real time because you look at how you are spitting out these folks at the end of their careers and they're done. And when there's Mm -hmm. opportunities to at least have some sort of empathy for what they're going through, the outcomes are much better, right? And so I know a little bit about it with regards to military, more about medical, but you know, in a medical environment, if it's a crucible environment the entire time, meaning, right, you're just wearing them down to a nub, then most physicians or a majority of the physicians will start to develop apathy because there's no empathy because they don't have the, you know, internal resilience to even care about their patients. They're just trying to survive themselves. And we know there's a strong correlation towards that sort of burnout and then patient outcomes. So it all has this trickle-down effect. And so we're highlighting medicine because medicine you know, has a lot of 
quantitative data where we can make these assertions with empirical evidence, but you can overlay that almost over any profession where there's a high level of burnout and this idea that, you know, it can't be a joyful environment because that's not sort of the social norm. And so luckily, I think across sport, across medicine, across the military, those are changing where it makes sense. Like obviously, Mm. and the only reason I even bring up the military is obviously there are going to be times where, you know, at war where things can't be fun, right? I mean, it's just the nature of it. And so I think that's another kind of interesting lens where, yet, obviously, you know, by proxy, it's going to be traumatic in, in some instances, but by making it more pleasurable in other instances and sort of certainly reducing the amount of discomfort has led to some pretty interesting benefits, you know, across the board. So, you know, luckily people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking about all the applications for this concept now, even with, I mean, you mentioned children's sport earlier, but I know looking at my own children and their experience of some higher level kids sport that there's a point at which, and this might be developmental as well, but, you know, my son has said to me, mum, it's just not fun anymore. And so why would I do it? And you kind of go, well, yeah. And I I think I might've mentioned that in a previous episode, but it's where this kind of comes in that if it's not fun, where's the motivation for something like sport, but workplaces anywhere where burnout is going to play a part, whether that's at the emotional level or at something more psychological, physiological, emotional, then being able to take this lesson of if we can kind of create a fun element, whatever that fun is, you know, again, not that joyous fun, but whether that's to do with empathy, whether it's to do with connection with other people, whether it's to do with a motivational piece around growth, whatever it might be, but knowing that that is a really important ingredient in the total in order to make it work and allow that to be a peak experience for someone, but also to keep them engaged in that profession, team, sporting pursuit, whatever it might be over the longer term. Yeah. And I think you, I love the fact that you used ingredient because a lot of people will get hung up on this, like, well, everything's not meant to be fun. And that's absolutely true, but it needs to be an ingredient. So Mm. Just like grit needs to be an ingredient. I mean, as a parent, it's very important to unpack, is this just because you've lost motivation personally, or is this because it is just something that's not enjoyable, so it would be a waste of your time? And so understanding that and helping your child sort of work through that is important. And I think the same goes for a work environment, because I know a lot of listeners probably want to hear about how it's used in that context. And I think co-creating something that's enjoyable for everyone, even if it is something that's going to lead to like a big breakthrough. So maybe it's going to require longer hours and and things of that nature. How is it that each individual can be supported, but that also the experience itself is enjoyed by all. And so when I was young, you know, a leader might throw a pizza party and say, hey, have at it. And no one wanted to be there nor cared where if you kind of listened to your employees and figured out, okay, I know this is going to require a little bit of extra time, but what would be beneficial so that all of us feel better about that? And sometimes it could just be really understanding the shared goal and all believing in it and believing you have some sort of agency and autonomy to um, you know, move the project forward so that you're actually having fun when you're doing the work rather than feeling mm. like you're getting barked at. So that's mm. how that can be applied you know, in the work setting. A hackathon approach, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. They always sound like fun. I've never participated in such a thing, but they always <laughs> sound like fun to me. But again, it's a personal experience thing, isn't it? 
Well, and also because you're self-selecting in, right? But if it was prescribed mm. to you, mm. then all of a sudden, mm. come, you know. True. I don't know what a psychology hackathon would look like, <laughs> but there you go. Awe and wonder. Where do awe and wonder fit into this notion of mastery and growth and fun? Yeah, I think being able to maintain and develop a curious mindset so that you're experiencing things and understanding that there's a world outside of yourself that has all sorts of mystery and sort of inviting that in creates a whole host of benefits mainly. And we've talked about it before, you know, it facilitates nonlinear thinking because as you're pulling aspects of things that might not necessarily fit in the day-to-day, that allows you to sort of think outside of the box, which is obviously a bad, you know, overused metaphor, but that's why that stuff becomes important. I think outside of a work context, inviting, you know, sort of the mysteries of life and are things that really get you to think, you know, so that you have sort of a richer context so that you're not relying on those heuristics that you have that we know doesn't lead to the neuroplasticity that you need, you know, once you start to potentially get old enough to succumb to cognitive decline. So figuring out what that means to you becomes really important. And so where you find that is going to be as unique as you are as an individual. So it could be through a spiritual practice. It could be through connecting with nature. It could be discovery if you're into science or you're an engineer. But the reason why those things are so important is because they do, one, make you understand that knowledge is expansive and that you can't ever really get to a place where, you know, your cup is full. But that two, if you kind of look for things that you can find these hidden gems that really make life worth living. What works for you? Where do you get your awe and wonder? I I find it in books. I think, yeah, really surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me. And then also being open to new ideas. So I think at, you know, a certain point in my life, I was, you know, an atheist because that was kind of, you know, what a scientific slant sort of dictated. And then being open to, you know, this latency of the universe being amazing in all sorts of facets and that any idea can kind of exist in space, I think has allowed me to, you know, broaden my spectrum of sort of how ideas come together. And so, you know, it's one of those things like Eckhart Tolle, right? Like it's almost once your thoughts kind of transcend your ability to speak them through language, that's on wonder for me, like where I can just sit with an idea and I can't even put it into words, you know, just because I'm so awestruck by it. But then for me, I mean, it's more pedestrian, but nature certainly brings that in too. Like I'll just sit and marvel and it's a lot more accessible here in North Carolina than when we lived in California, but just to see all sorts of living creatures sort of coexist, but then not just the beauty, but the chaotic nature of it too, you know, where you're like watching kind of a butterfly be peaceful and then a bird just come and eat it. You know, like that, the idea that all of this sort of exists in, a, in an ecosystem that supports itself, you know, all the beauty and the destruction at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. letting that kind of soak in and not trying to identify it by like giving it a personal narrative, but, you know, just absorbing it and creating a theater rather than a mind's eye. That stuff. Mm. I mean, we're getting way out there. But <laughs> we're getting yeah. but, it, no, but it's so interesting because I think one of the things, and I know I've, I've spoken again in workplaces when I'm doing coaching programs and workshops to 
groups about this notion of awe in particular and the fact that we've got some really fascinating research that's come out on the topic and the benefits to us and our well-being and and trying to find help people to find the ways in which that is a personal experience again without necessarily having to attach a whole lot of language or a whole lot of you know we don't it sort of takes away from it if you start to break it down so for me looking at the sky has always been something and and as you sort of described that I thought oh there probably is something around that sense of the universe being an enormous place and and just the scope of it and the endlessness of it and then my place in it but I've probably not bothered to put the language around it I've just kind of tried to soak it in because maybe that's what we're meant to do with awe I'm not sure but trying to find those things that are personal and unique and mean something to us and again, you know, great conversations to have with people around, you know, what are you curious about? What What is wonderful? What is awe to you? I know when we were growing up, my dad, we, we used to go on holiday with my cousins and my dad, and I can't remember if it was an ongoing thing or just one particular year because it's a very long time ago now. And he sent us out to find a wondrous thing. So we were actually, we were staying in a country property in Tasmania for anybody, you know, the Australians listening, you'll know that Tasmania is a, can be a fairly remote type place. And this is in the 1980s. It was, <laughs> it was pretty remote. And he said, go and find a wondrous thing. And he sort of made it almost a, a competition element to it. It was a series of a whole lot of competitive, not, not seriously competitive, fun competitive things that we'd done in the name of, I think the Olympics were on at the year. So it was kind of like our own little mini family version of the Olympics. And this one event was to go and find a wondrous thing. And I remember, I know for me, and I suspect for, I was the eldest of the cousins. So I suspect for all of us, and I was maybe 11, that it was kind of like, what's a wondrous thing? Dad, I need more information. I need more, you know, can you quantify what? And it was like, no, this is your personal quest to go and find something that you think is wondrous. And so we all came back with that and we, you know, there were sheep skulls and there were bits of rusty farm equipment and there was, you know, maybe something from nature. I can't remember exactly, but that whole kind of just go forth and find something that you think is a wondrous thing and therefore you are a little bit curious about it. And then I'm sure when we came back, knowing my dad, we had long conversations about, you know, what do you think it is and why do you think, you know, the where's and the why's and the what's to try and get a little bit more curious and perhaps therefore a little bit more knowledgeable about it. But yeah, a really personal experience. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Maybe it is just wandering out into your yard or your garden, you know, or wandering the streets. I wonder if that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Just wander the streets, going for a walk (laughs) and being curious, soaking up a little bit of wonder about something. Yeah. And that's where I think the distinction, you know, all these semantics are interesting. And I know sometimes people interlace the two, but like for me, awe is really that experience of um, soaking in something that makes me realize that I'm inconsequential because then that gives me this psychological space to realize that my problems aren't as big as I'm making them out to be, right? Mm. When I make myself small and the outside world, the natural outside world, not the fake invisible army world mm. that we talked about <laughs> just a few minutes ago, but my, you know, my context that I'm important, but I'm not as important as I think and that my problems are kind of finite that's where awe kind of engrossing myself into something bigger than myself becomes important for wonder it's sometimes for me it's more contrived but it's still equally as important and again i think this is going to be different for different people but i will go and purposely 
uh, seek out really good magicians because I'm just like so spellbound that I can be fooled that easily. And then there's a science center here locally and I'll take my children there, like understanding or learning to understand science that doesn't quite make sense. Whether that's like there's a two-headed turtle at this particular science center and they often do experiments, chemical reactions that are kind of spectacular to keep the kids' interest but they keep my interest too. Like I can't, mm. this is wondrous that these things can happen in our physical environment. And so whether it's either being tricked and sort of understanding that the mind is a lot more malleable and, and we can be fooled or that I don't quite understand all the intricacies of the physical environment, like that's wonder for me. Some things that are mm. expansive and an understanding that we, we can't know at all. And then awe for me is, you know, those moments where I realize that there's something out there that's unexplainable that sort of connects us all together and makes us work that I don't think anyone quite understands and that I'm just a piece of it. And so when I make things more important than they are, especially my problems, you know, that, that kind of shrinks them and brings me back to focus. Mm, the wonder of perspective. Yeah. Mike, we started today's conversation touching on Maslow and <laughs> that kind of hierarchy. Where does that translate? I mean, we could have a whole other conversation. We could have multiple conversations about that whole, you know, Maslow and humanistic psychology, which is not for today. But <sighs> where does the kind of hierarchy type idea fit with this mastering and the art of fun? It's a great segue, right? Because, you know, a lot of people don't know that Maslow had a sixth part of that. And the whole idea of behind that is that once we relinquish all of these sort of needs of the self, then we're able to understand that we're just here to sort of serve other purposes. And so I think that's what these peak experiences do. What I talk about in the book is that it becomes not a me proposition anymore, because a lot of times when we're just initially talking about why should fun be important, all these hedonic principles come up, right? Like, oh, well, it's because we're pleasure-seeking animals. And to some degree, that's true. I mean, we want to have a pleasurable life. If we don't, any mammal starts to do really interesting biological things. It's clear there's a biological need to feel like things are enjoyable. But to grow past that and understand that it's not just a me proposition, that it's a we proposition and allowing us all to thrive no matter what that is, whether that's through connection, whether that's through helping others, it starts to become this we proposition and it makes us just feel better because then we we are connected. Whether we need to understand what that connection means or not isn't important anymore. And so it transcends the self into something that's much bigger and that's what's important. And there is a great book called Transcend by Scott. Barry Kaufman, which covers all of this in more detail. So we'll pop the details into the show That's notes a great book. for that. It's an mm-hmm. excellent book. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about transcendence and the work that he's done with into Maslow's work. So, you know, for anybody who's interested, we can pop all the details of that in the show notes who want to kind of get a bit more into and explore a little and enjoy the awe and wonder of transcendence and Maslow. And we will pick this up in our next conversation, this movement from the me proposition to the we proposition and how that makes a difference for us and for society as a whole. So that feels like a good place to finish off our conversation for today. Mike, thank you so much. We will be back for what will be our final conversation 
about fun and well-being for this series and that is in our next episode and I'd like to see I've forgotten already maybe 114 I don't know it doesn't really matter (laughs) it'll have a title it'll be in your podcast feed it'll be there to listen to and enjoy in just a week's time so thanks again Mike we'll speak to you soon yeah talk soon So it turns out fun isn't always fun, huh? What are the type two fun experiences that you have on a regular basis? Those activities that might not feel that pleasant or enjoyable in the moment, but do bring you a sense of achievement or awe or satisfaction once they're done. We all have them and we probably underestimate their importance in our everyday well-being. Which brings me to our listener question for this episode. How can you add fun as an ingredient to your more challenging tasks and situations? Let me know all about it. If you're listening via Spotify or anchor.fm, you will see our Q&A question in the notes for this episode. You can pop your response in there. It is private, so no one else will see it but me, but I would love to hear from you. And if you're not listening on Spotify or Anchor, we are asking the same question over on our social channels. And you can always send me an email via the Potential Psychology website. That's at potential.com.au, where you'll also find the show notes and a transcript of today's conversation and a great Q&A with Dr. Mike if you haven't seen that yet, just to find out a little more about who he is and what he does. I'm also putting a link in the show notes to the book that Mike and I discussed just towards the end of this episode, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization by Scott Barry Kaufman, one of my favourite psychologists. And don't forget that you can now become a special VIP member of the Potential Psychology Podcast community with access to bonus episodes. To find out more, head to our website, potential.com.au or to anchor.fm potential psychology forward slash subscribe. And my new online mini course, Thriving Post-Pandemic, I've talked to a little bit about this in each of the episodes of this series. It is available now and online. It's tips for well-being and well-doing, me exploring the impact that the pandemic's had on us and then providing you with some practical tips and strategies for getting really from just surviving back to thriving. It's an hour or so of video content with downloadable guides and it's only $50, which is a small investment for a thriving life. I'll be back with Dr. Mike Rucker in our next and final episode for this series in which we'll be talking about how we can make fun for wellbeing a lifelong habit with a bit of a chat too about fun for social change and social good. What role does it play in making meaningful change in our community? That is next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. Until then, stay well, stay safe and take small steps to fulfil your potential. <laughs>